Welcome to the Behavior Grooves Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply them to work and life. Our episode today is with Kuhn Smets, originally from Brussels, but living in the UK for the past 20 years. Kuhn has worked in a variety of corporate jobs over the years and is the founding partner of Care IQ, which offers innovative concepts for smart care in the healthcare markets. We were interested in talking with Kuhn because of his great work and tweets about behavioral economics. His witty insights and unique perspective on the field brings a well-needed voice to the application of behavioral sciences. I couldn't agree more. Our conversation started by talking about the so-called replication prices and Kuhn's thoughts on that. Then we talked a little bit about homogeneity and the actual differences between Europe and the U.S. Then we looped back and we talked about the difference between, or similarities, between behavioral economics and classical economics. Yeah, and how that is a false dichotomy, or at least we think it should be, right. Uh, We move on to the differences that environment makes, not only in how we make decisions today, but in how our brain was formed and the worldview that that environment makes, whether you grow up in Brussels and see the ocean, or whether you grow up in Switzerland and see mountains. Mountains. Yeah. Uh, then Coin po- or Kuhn points out that the need for organizations to test best practices and not just think that putting a best practice in place is going to get the exact same result that it got in another organization. Ab- absolutely. We wandered into some of uh, Kuhn's papers, uh, some of my favorites. One is uh, there's more to behavioral economics than bias. And then my absolute favorite, which is an accidental behavioral economist on holiday. On holiday? Isn't well, that a vacation? It is in the U.S., okay. but in the rest of the entire world, it's a holiday. And um, but this this paper uh, spoke to his insights on what it's like going to the same seaside town in the same flat year after year, and then noticing what happens to the surrounding businesses when a patisserie closes, or how the cost of street parking affects traffic and shopping, or how reputation and risk go together. Yeah, yeah, cool stuff. Of course, Tim made sure that we ended up talking about music, which in this case was about jazz. But I I have to say, I learned something. I learned about about altered chords. Good. So people, you're going to have to listen to the entire conversation to find out what an altered chord is, if you don't know what that is. Um, So with that, sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation with Kuhn Smets. Welcome, Kuhn Smets, to our Behavioral Groups podcast this morning. Well, thank you, and uh, thanks for inviting me. It's a great honor to be here with you. (laughs) We are super excited to have you on the show today, Um, and we always begin with a speed round where we just ask random questions, want your quick, short responses on these, so uh, if you're ready to go. I was already afraid of that, but yes, I'm ready. Uh, most most of our guests are. So I'll start here. Bike or unicycle? Unicycle. Uh, what's the best advice you got from your mother? Be good. <laughs> okay. You a coffee drinker or a tea drinker? Mostly tea. I'm in the UK. That's <laughs> one of the reasons we asked it. Herbie Hancock or Chick Corea? Chick Corea. Mmm, says a lot right there. (laughs) All right, replication crisis, real or overblown? Overblown. 
All right. Um, let's dive right into that. <laughs> yeah. So help us understand. So why do you, why would you say that the replication crisis is overblown? What what are some of the background on that? And for people, for listeners who don't know, there has been over the past what four or five years, maybe even a little bit longer, uh, a, a number of of researchers who have gone out and looked to replicate some of the more famous studies that have been done in psychology as well as in other sciences. And many times they find that they cannot reproduce the same findings that they have. John Barks. John Bark um, is, is a classic in the walking down a, a hallway after being primed to be thinking of old and, and having that being slow is, is kind of the main ones. And Brian Nozick is one of the leaders in, in this group. But Garkun, help us understand your thoughts on why you think that's a little bit overblown. Um, well, I think there are a, a few um, angles to this. I think one is that, in in my view, in social sciences, um, there are it, it's very hard to control all the circumstances of any environment. And so, if you do a replication, then can you really be in control of all the circumstances? And if you're not, then it is not unlikely that you will find something else has happened than in the first uh, instance of an experiment. Right. So is that necessarily a, a replication of failure? Um, not in my view. Uh, I think when, when you try to replicate something, um, you, you need to be careful with what it is you want to replicate. And uh, there are so many things, so many possible confounding factors that um, I, my, my feeling is that uh, to the the term replication failure is wheeled out a bit too quickly um, and in my view the, the the real value of a second experiment or a third or fourth experiment that doesn't totally replicate is to me the question why not right what is different between the different uh, experiments and I think it's too easy to say well it was pretty much the same well pretty much is not good enough, I think. And to me, as a, as a sort of a, an, an accidental student of human behavior in a sense, um, I'm much more interested in what is not exactly as you expect it to be. And to me, that includes replication. Something that replicates, well, it's just another data point. It's great. So probably whatever the, the, the initial study did is a bit more likely now. But um, my my sense, especially in the last couple of years, is that the replication crisis has kind of created uh, tribes. You have the believers of the original idea, and then you have the people who are so happy that they managed to tear something down. And I don't think that is necessarily helpful for scientific progress and for the scientific method. I think we should be less... Um, uh, as bullshit about the original um, idea. Hey, this is fantastic, and yeah, look at this, how quirky and crazy we are. But we should also not be as um, as stark at the first non-replication of something and say, oh, look, this original thing was a complete load of BS. Um, I think we need to be more nuanced um, on both sides, and then I think we will learn a lot more. Yeah, I think that uh, you bring up a couple different things. One, uh, that the the element of that scientific method it isn't that really what we're actually doing. We're, we're finding more data to either support or, or not support whatever that is. And, and your point of saying, yeah, it, 
if it's not an exact, if it's pretty close, but it's not exactly the replication, then it isn't the exact replication. And so you have those confounding factors. New, and new so data points, yeah. New data points. And I think, to, to your point, I think there's an element of this that we tend to overgeneralize some of the, the bigger things, right? And so all of a sudden, yeah, for instance, Bark's study on this big piece of, you know, ancient, or, you know, priming for, um, you know, elderly kind of components, and then you generalize that into the, the broader sphere. Well, it was one study in one controlled area, and, and so you make sure that you do that. Um, there was, a, there was a, a hidden brain segment, and I don't know um, if you would have, but again, it was, uh, they, they brought up the, uh, the research by Shi, uh, uh, Hackney, and Ambity. I think I just messed up their names, but it was about priming for uh, either your uh, uh, gender, so female on, on taking a math test, or on your ethnicity. Yeah, I know the study you, uh, you refer to, yes. Yeah, and so they found, in the original study, they found that when they primed for gender, women perform less well on, on a math test, and when they primed for ethnicity, Asian women you know, scored better, and then they, they replicated it, and it was Brian Nozick did this, and what was really interesting was in Georgia, they did two replication studies, one in Georgia and one in California. Mm -hmm. And the one in California didn't support the, the original. It found absolutely no thing. But the one in Georgia did support it. Mm -hmm. so again, to your point, yeah. well, what is the culture in Georgia versus the culture in California? Absolutely. I think, I think culture is an important thing. And maybe this is something that uh, us Europeans have as an advantage compared to many Americans. Um, I, I mean, I've worked in probably 80% of all the European Union countries. And I mean, one of the things that doesn't cease to amaze me is, I mean, I often do this kind of test when I'm going to another country. I sit on, a, I say, on a terrace with a drink in the evening after a long day's work. I close my eyes and I, I ask myself, when you open your eyes, will you be able to tell which country, country you're in? And most of the time, I can't. So it, I think there are people who say, oh, well, Europe is kind of becoming one big homogenous mass of something, nothing of the kind, in my experience, at least. So this cultural diversity um, between, even between regions within one country, but certainly between the Nordic countries and the Mediterranean countries and so on, all of that, I think, plays uh, uh, often a hidden part in creating a context and this may influence why something works um, or not. And I think unless you're aware of that, you will easily be tripped up by a non-replication for a cultural factor that you, you're simply blind to. So I think we, we've had enough of the replication crisis, I think, now. I, we, we need to move on and, and, and grow up, grow out of this, in my view. So, so, so your point is that when you go through this little experiment, you you have a drink. I like the, I like the series, by the way. Have a drink, then close your eyes. I, I like, good good start. Uh, you close your eyes, and then when you open your eyes, you, you can immediately tell. You're immediately aware of the differences from country. Pretty much, yes, yes. I mean, it's the architecture. It's the way people dress. It's how they. Uh, what they drive, is there lots of public transport, are the streets clean, is, are there lots of trees? There's so many aspects that are different. And I mean, another thing, which of course you have in, in America, just as much as the geography of, of countries can be very different. I, I do, and I have done a lot of work in the Netherlands, which is undoubtedly the flattest country in the world. 
Um, I mean, half, more than half of it is actually below sea level. Yeah. So that's how flat it is. Um, and then you compare this with Austria or Switzerland or the south of Germany, where you're in the mountains. This must have an, in, an effect, an impact on how your worldview develops as a kid. You grow up and you can see 20 miles. I mean, all, all you can see is fields and, and the occasional tree in the Netherlands. And if you grow up in Zurich, um, then you look out of the window and you see a big mountain. You look through the back window, you see another big mountain. <laughs> that, that's the kind of thing that, that shapes you in ways that you do not even realize. And in that light, I think it's not surprising that whatever experiments in social sciences you come up with is affected by those kind of influences. Right, and I think that the, the, the couple pieces there that I just wanted to touch on, one is that in America, I think we, to your point, because we have uh, this country that is supposedly one big country, as opposed to Europe where you got multiple countries, different languages and all the stuff that you talked about, we tend to assume that everybody's the same and yet, I know when I go to New Orleans or I go to uh, San Diego or I go to, uh, you know, someplace out in Wyoming, they're very different cultures, but we, we, we don't necessarily take that into consideration as much. As and, and, and yet, one of my big complaints about, about travel uh, today is that you can go to any of the big cities. You can go to Boston oh. or, or New York or Atlanta or, or Los Angeles or Houston, and you're gonna see the same Starbucks and Gap and Pottery Barn and, and the same retailers occupy those spaces in a way that I think is just, yeah. It, we're losing any kind of cultural diversity within the United States that, that once existed. Yeah, to a degree. Um, I mean, as I said, um, the, the this, idea that there's there's some some homogenization in europe is is alive here as well of course the difference in languages um is a big barrier uh, to that it's not going to happen we're not all going to start speaking english certainly not after brexit um, <laughs> uh, french or or some other language to be i mean in, i once toyed with the idea of writing a book a novel on on the adventures of a guy who was tasked by the european commission to prepare for the whole of Europe to speak Dutch. Um, <laughs> a crazy idea. Um, but I, I don't think that's happening. And, and one of the nice things, I think, in Europe is that you can get some wine with McDonald's in France. Because the French would not accept to go out for a meal and not have access to wine. So I think it's really nice to get, you get McDonald's, yes, but it's McDonald's French style. Or it's in, in Holland, another thing. I, I don't know whether either of you have ever been to the Netherlands, but they have a weird delicacy there called croquette. Yeah. It's basically some kind of um, thickened meat stew rolled in, in breadcrumbs and deep fried. Now you can get a mac croquette in the Netherlands. It's basically a, a bun with a flat croquette. And I love it. <laughs> you can only get it in the Netherlands. And I think this kind of... Um, localization of global stuff is is what's happening, and I think it's um, it's great. This diversity, I think, diversity is is the secret weapon of of us humans. It's because we are so diverse that we we survive and we we thrive in the way that we have more than any other species. So we we, we talk about how uh, there's additional tribalization. There's there's mm -hmm. more sub tribalization going on. Do you think it is just a natural form of the human condition 
to bifurcate from whatever group was. I think about I think about uh, religion and faith, and and, mm-hmm. and if we follow the Judeo-Christian story, we start with Judaism, and then and then there's a, a branch that comes off for Christianity, and then and then during the Reformation, uh, Christianity yep. breaks into you know a Protestantism in a variety of different ways, and and today there are hundreds and hundreds of different denominations of, of Christianity within the United States. Do you think that this is just a natural element of, of the human form, or, or is it possible we'll go back to something that's more uh, less diverse? I think it's, a, it's probably a, a pendulum movement. I think it sort of swings one way and then swings back a bit the other way. I don't think we'll move to some true homogeneity. I think there's, there's too many too many things that different people are different in uh, taste of music taste in food uh, cultural uh, affiliation political affiliation all that i think what i mean when i when i talk about the pendulum i think it's probably more about how this manifests itself um i think well i i I'm, i live in a country which was not that long ago still partially torn by at least nominally religious strife in northern ireland um although uh, it is we should not exaggerate this. I think it's not as if the Protestants and the Anglicans could really fighting all the time. It was there was a lot of, of politics and even crime uh, involved, um, sort of drug smuggling and weapon smuggling and all that kind of thing. But um, I think the it, it is perfectly possible to be diverse without needing to fight each other. Um, you can just say, well, I have a different opinion, but we can live next to one another, and that's great. I think the pendulum is, has been swinging, and I hope it will stop swinging in this direction soon, towards more hostility between different tribes. Um, it's not enough to be different. There is a sense that you're superior, and therefore you have a right to dominate the others. And I think that's not only very unpleasant, it's also not very helpful. I don't think anybody gets better um, from that. So, I think it's a byproduct of our our quest for diversity and for carving out um, identities uh, in whatever way. I mean, I wrote about identities a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it it also comes up in in this whole replication crisis. Just to sort of loop back a little bit there, there is a sort of oh yeah. Well, I mean, it, it even started with behavioral economics in the sense that oh these neoclassical economists with, and their home economicus. Yeah. A load of bullshits. Um, let's 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 just topple that and come up with something else. Well, I mean, to me, I'm I'm more of the sort of the, um, the I'm more a kind of integrating kind of person. Okay, we've got this, we've got something else. Well, there's probably some truth in both. Let's see if we can combine this in something to something useful, and that applies as much in terms of philosophy and religion as in. Um, social sciences or, or yeah, yeah just societal stuff let's let's yeah. say have you have you read any of jonathan Haidt's work on uh like his uh, the righteous mind or any of mm-hmm. that work where he's talking about the moral uh what is it moral sediments or the moral sentiments yeah, yeah. uh yes. and the difference components of which he's breaking it down around politics and particularly u.s politics but mm-hmm. there's the the underlying 
uh, innate moral components of fairness and uh, sanctity, and I forget what some of the others are, but uh, which again blends itself into some forms of tribalism around your beliefs around each of those. Um, and yet, you know, we look at this, we all have uh, the, them, we just have them in different degrees. And so it lends itself to, again, maybe some of that integration and more of the homogeneity if we can focus on what's, what's the same as opposed to focusing on what's different. Uh, anyway, just wondering if you had, you had read any of, of his work. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think that's right. I think we have so much more in common. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all striving to, to be happy and to, to have a good life. And there are the, I mean, there are different ways of doing this. There's no point in trying to insist it has to be done this way or the other way. I mean, I remember a, a few years back in South Park, uh, I think the exact circumstances, but there's this, there's three tribes of atheists. They all, they all go back to um, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, but they interpret them in the same, in, in different ways. And they sort of fight it. And it's, it is absolutely hilarious how, how um, the, the maker of the South Park think this. I mean, they just sort of send us as a whole human race up with these these cartoons. And I think, yeah, they hold us up a mirror. And I think we should we should just even learn from that. I think, I mean, by the way, I think South Park is a great uh, <laughs> a great source of uh, of wisdom for me. Well, South Park <laughs> and The Simpsons, I think, yes. you know, both are these cartoons that kind of point out these natural weirdness of human nature that we are and we're not just good we're good enough <laughs> so, so anyway uh, I, I want to get back to this environment question uh, mm -hmm. because uh, the complexity in replication is is one thing but environment as you said the difference between say growing up in rotterdam and being able to see for miles and miles and miles uh versus growing up in zurich where you're all you're seeing are are, are these mountains how much of geographical uh, diversity and uh, environment is influential versus the the life in our home and the uh, and and uh, and you know the, the the way that we actually grow up? Um, you know what, what what do you think that that what do you think the influence is? I think I think it's hard to disentangle it all. Um, I think I mean my my, my hunch is that we. We get a lot from our very early years. That's when when you get some some real sense of the world. And I, I think maybe and, and don't quote me on this. But I I don't have any grounding in psychology and even less in developmental psychology. But I think as a, as a kid, there is not much there yet. So there's lots of space to put thoughts in, and therefore the thoughts take a lot of space in your your mind. And as you grow older, then it gets sort of cut down to size and other things come in. But it's the bits that happen first that are perhaps most momentous and, and, and most, uh, uh, most profound in, in shaping your view of the world and your, your sense of right and wrong, and those kind of things. And I think part of that is, is it mountains or is it flat fields? Another part of it is it is uh, what kind of family uh, are we? Do we look after each other? Is it a big family, a small family? Are we are parents strict? Are they more sort of laid back? All these kind of things. I think it all sort of melts together in in one one big soup in a sense. I'm mixing my metaphors here, <laughs> um, but I I think it's hard to disentangle sort of family situation and geography, for instance. But 
I did some work with the European Commission, as it happens, uh, well, nearly 20 years ago, on technology transfer between European uh, countries. Okay. Uh, and to see how, how people develop technology, share it out, and, and adopt it. And, and part of that was looking at the different cultures. Then, of course, you see that in, in Southern Europe, uh, people are more family-oriented than in North of Europe. And, I mean extended family, not the, the single household, but the cousins and the uncles and aunts and everything. And I don't think that is by design. It's just by osmosis you pick that up. And, and therefore, your affinity with family and family values and um, taking the sides the side of, of a family member in, in a conflict with somebody else will be stronger on, on average in Southern European countries than it is in uh, Northern European countries. And, and so, you, well, and, and you do a lot of work with organizational development. Mm -hmm. And so uh, does that bleed into organizations? Is there something? Oh, also? absolutely. And I think that maybe that's also one of the reasons why I'm, I'm kind of a bit, I have a bit of a downer on this replication crisis because in organization development, you can't just take something that worked with your previous client and your current client. Um, I mean, obviously, there is such a thing as organizational culture. It's it's hard to grasp. It's like the, uh, the judge in the sanity case. I can't describe it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think, I mean, to me, this is so natural that you, you have to almost start from first principles every time you, you go to a client. You need to understand how they tick. Is it a, is it a longstanding business? Is it a relatively young business? Um, what management style? Um, is this with lots of uh, people that have been there for a long time, so quite sort of steady and stable, or is there a lot of uh, in and out? All these kind of things. What industry are they working in? Are they working in a consumer industry where they're kind of used to responding very quickly? I worked um, with a company that uh, enriches uranium. Mm -hmm. um, they have an older book stretching out 30 years into the future. 30 years. Can you imagine what that does to the way the company works? So people are out there selling capacity that will be used in 30 years' time. Yeah. Now, that is extreme, but it's the kind of thing that inevitably shapes the organization. So if you want to move something there, you need a different kind of force than if you work with a fast-moving consumer goods company. Yeah, let's just say that the people at Google don't have those same considerations. No, no, exactly. I mean, 30 years is like forever. It's it's yeah. unimaginable. and and so. All these things shape the context, and I think they they will moderate and modulate whatever you want to do, and it, they may make it fail. So you come with something that you say, "Hey, this worked really well with uh, company A, B, and C in the past. This is company D. This is going to work here as well," and it doesn't. Yeah. And then you need to figure out, well, how come? And then yeah, you, you see, oh yeah, that's probably why. Yeah, I mean, that's the way they work together. I didn't quite spot it early enough. And um, and so you 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 grow your understanding as you, as you um, as you work there. And it's it's interesting. So we do a lot of work with organizations as well. And one of the things that we see is uh, even within the same industry uh, that same component, right? Company A is selling very similar drugs in, in a pharmaceutical industry than company you know B, and yet their cultures are vastly different. And the, the, the interesting thing that we always hear is, well, well, just tell me what way you're doing at, at company A so that we can do that because that will make us better. And we're going, 
it, that won't work. You know, best practices are best practices. And yes, you can potentially use them, but they may not work or they may work very differently in company B than they do in company A. And it is a constant struggle that we face and say, well, just, just do what you did over there. And we're going, but we can't. I mean, we, you could, but it's not going to get you the result that you want. So, yeah. I, I, it, it, I'm reminded of um, something that you wrote. Um, gosh, I'm, looking, I, I, I'm looking through my notes here that made me think about this idea that we, we have this desire to, uh, on one hand, we, want, we have this desire to just, just give me the information. You know, it's company B saying, just tell me what company A did and, and I'll do that. And at the same time, we also have this desire to say, well, what company A did, of course, won't work for what, <laughs> what I'm going to do. So you can't just bring, you can't port it over. Um, it, 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 I, I, I'm sure that you've seen this in your work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's obviously it's it's neither. And I think that's why it's so important not to um not to embrace any belief in that it will or it won't work too strongly. You we need to keep an open mind, and certainly as practitioners, we need to keep an open mind um as to what might or might not work. And I find it sometimes quite tricky to manage a client, particularly when they have a strong belief about it's gotta be like this or it can be like that. Um, so yeah, you, you develop a certain kind of diplomacy, I would say yeah. in, in handling clients like that. So you can effectively do what you think is right. Um, I mean, survey the, the organization. I'm, I don't necessarily mean going around the clipboard or sending people questionnaires, but get a sense of how they tick and then come up with the right approach to, to, uh, to, to whatever it is that you need to be doing. Yeah. I think reinventing the wheel is underrated i think this is what we do we reinvent the wheel all the time not not the theoretical mathematical wheel with um, uh, a line that is at sort of equidistant of a point in the middle but how we uh, implement it to fit the organization i mean you're not going to get um, a formula one uh, car wheel on a unicycle that's that's unlikely to work well maybe actually it might work better because it, it might be a little more well yes we need to keep an open mind so we shouldn't say it won't work we should say let's investigate and that's why i think experimentation is so uh, important in in this work uh, as well it's not always easy because of course you don't normally have sample sizes or populations that are big enough and that are easy enough to separate with the control group. <clears throat> but even so, I think you you must find ways of at least testing your idea um, and be willing to learn whether it works or not. And if it doesn't work, you've learned something and you can move on. Well, and I think that's one of the benefits of having a, a viewpoint, either whether scientific method or behavioral sciences, is coming in with the mindset of saying, we need to do some testing or some experimenting and, and to see, because again, we know humans and culture and environment and everything else that impacts and your situation is different than situation you know, over here. And so we need to figure out what's gonna work for you. Um, and it's always amazing. I mean, even you know, as you look at, at some work that has been done and you say, wow, they changed just a few things. We just did a, a, 
an interview with with Sarita, um, Sarita Parikh, Parik, who is doing some work around uh, improving the GED and getting people to to continue on with their GED program. And they had done all this work with organizations that were doing this, and they put that in on their big thing, and they had redone their website, all this stuff. She's looking forward to, you know, we had done all the right things, and then they got the first research back, and it was no effect. No effect. Mm -hmm. And it's like, ah, oh. but then, you know, they started experimenting and they tweaked just a few things and all of a sudden they saw the, the results go up. But it was, you know, again, it, you could have just left it there and said, oh, this is, this is, it's a failure. But what they did is they kept trying and, and iterating. So, yeah. And I think in a sense, it's, I mean, I, in, in a way, I prefer things to go wrong because then it forces you to ask the question, why not? Why didn't it work? If it does work, of course it works. I'm such a genius. I came up with the greatest idea. So <laughs> it works. And I think you learn more from, from when it fails than when it, it works well. So I, what got you interested in the behavioral sciences? Yeah, you have an engineering background, right? Yeah, yeah you're an engineer by training. Yes, I am. Um, and I, I rolled into management consultancy also almost by mistake. Um, I joined a technical consultancy, assuming I was going to do some lab-based work and write software and stuff like that. Um, but then this developed more into how do you get people working in product development to interface better with marketing and with manufacturing. And so that then became business process re-engineering. The word engineering in there, that's something for me. So I got it. That. But then, as an engineer, you have kind of a bit of naive view of how organizations work. You, you look at the organization structure and you look at the arrows going between people and between uh, the, the different departments. And then you find it doesn't quite work uh, according to your expectations. And that's when I, this is like good, good 20, 25 years ago, that I, I realized there was this sort of hidden dimension that I was unaware of or at least not very familiar with. That's the people. Um, and if you want to have a different result, you need to get people to change. You need them to do things differently. And that then became an ever bigger fascination, and that process is ongoing. Why do people do what they do? Why do they make the choice they make? And so on. And I, I'm still looking for the answer. I mean, there is not a single answer. I'm still looking to understand that better. Um, and obviously, in my work, it's primarily in organizational change uh, when you have a restructuring or some kind of external or internally opposed change whether it's a new software system or uh, or some kind of organizational moves you want people to do things differently and then how do you get them to do that and interestingly my my first steps there were using insights from conventional economics rather than behavioral economics okay I was looking at the the sort of neoclassical view, if you like. Well, there are costs to something and benefits, and we make the we weigh them up, and then we decide. Well, it's worth it, so I'll do this, uh, or it's not worth it, so I won't do it, and I will, I will do something else. And that works to some extent, but only to some extent. And that was sort of the late '90s, early 2000s, when behavioral sciences began to penetrate. I wouldn't say the mainstream, but certainly began to um, show up at the edges of my peripheral site, so to speak, and that was kind of the missing piece of the jigsaw. I clearly, I'm, I'm still 
a great believer. I'm an accidental economist just as much as an accidental behavioral economist. So <laughs> I'm, I'm still using insights from conventional economics in the sense that people make rational decisions a lot of the time. And often when they don't make the right decision or the decision you want is because they're, they don't have the right information or they don't interpret it in the right way, but the mechanism itself is there. But then alongside, you've got um, other aspects like um, sort of beliefs where people simply don't weigh up anything at all and they just blindly follow a particular um, route because that's, they think that is right. It's the only right way to do things. Or you have the, the sort of where people have weak preferences, just do whatever other people do or whatever is easiest and that's where you get into the whole choice architecture. Um, and I find that an extremely rich um, palette from which to you know, mix your paint and, and construct or, or, or develop your painting uh, in the client where you're working. Um, you have a dollop of conventional economics and cost-benefit analysis, you have some um, heuristics and beliefs that people are habits that they follow and then you have the the, the other final color um sort of tricolor um system with which you can work and you can come up with both a way to diagnose a problem and then with a way to resolve the problem what is your recollection on what what was it what was the catalyst for getting you interested in the behavioral sciences do you remember was there a specific paper you read or a piece or a talk I think it was the Thaler and Sunstein uh, Libertarian Paternalism uh, paper, 2003. Um, because I, at the time, I mean, obviously, when you work in organization development, in, in organization uh, uh, development, it's often translated as imposed change or desired change. So do you want to tell people what to do or do you want them to uh, want to do, uh, want to change? and there is a sort of dichotomy, that kind of dichotomy you find in, in, in nudging as well. I mean, they, they, libertarian paternalism is kind of a, an oxymoron. It, either you're, you're free or somebody is deciding on your behalf. And, and that kind of tension resonated with me as in, hey, I'm familiar with at least one instance of this kind of thing. So how do they go about this? And this whole idea of... Um, uh, not doing something that's against the wishes of, of someone, not having any bribes, because that's often the way organizations work. Yeah, we'll give you a bonus if you do it right, we'll punish you, we'll, we'll sort of sack you if you, uh, if you don't do it. Um, so that's, a, that's, I think, when, when it began to dawn that there is something there that can be woven into this fabric I was, uh, I was working on, and, uh, and that would be helpful for me. That's true. I, I, I've been dominating the question. No, that's okay. So, so <laughs> okay. I wanted to go, um, both Tim and I uh, have talked about this, that we wish we would have been the authors of this, this article you wrote. There's more to behavioral economics than biases and policies, mm -hmm. in, in which you're talking about. There's been this, uh, I don't know, kind of general movement to just it, it, behavioral economics is a list of biases that we have and and if you can just pick which bias is going to be applied here then you've solved all the answers uh, yeah. and you dismantled that really nicely and I think in a way that 
again, that I definitely agree with. Can you help uh, for our listeners who haven't, if they haven't read that, you know, just kind of the, the general overview of what you were try, trying to say there? Well, I mean, I think I'm a bit like an ex-smoker in that respect. Um, you know, people who have smoked before are the, the most fervent uh, anti-tobacco. Um, <laughs> and I, I was taken in by some of these biases. I mean, you read Predictably Irrational um, and the other books by Reality and, and sort of uh, popular science uh, type, uh, type books. And you see this array of biases and, and, and fallacies and you think bloody hell I mean what what kind of what are we doing here we're, we're, we're wrong there's so much wrong in, in how we we operate so and and you think that's all there is um, because you're you're taken in by the by the sensational um, aspect of it yeah. um, and then of course you you realize well it's not that simple um, there are many of these uh, so-called and heuristics uh, that have a that is, are there for a good reason that are there for have, have evolved with us and have served us well for a long time and it's only again going back to what we were discussing earlier um, is because we live in a different context now that these things uh, no longer uh, are no longer necessarily always the right thing to do mm-hmm. uh, but there's, there's much more nuance to the picture than just this this whole stack of of um, fallacies and uh, and biases yeah you, you wrote yeah. that um a widespread misconception is that biases explain yeah. and produce behavior yes yeah don't yeah no of course it's not because of confirmation bias confirmation bias is just the name you give to a certain behavioral um a pattern yeah um, so we, we we've, give, we've given it names and it's a bit like trying to learn a language from a dictionary um, yeah, I know the translation of all these words, and now I can write uh, poetry in in Armenian or something. So it's uh, that, that's not how it works. So you really need to get the, the context of it all. Yeah. And I think it, I I was kind of happy with the increased attention that behavioral economics and behavioral science was getting in the media, so let's say four or five years ago and and beyond. But it's been trivialized. And I'm not sure that's a good development. Um, so I wish we could turn back the clock a little bit and say, hold on, we've got enough now. I mean, people have some idea what it is. Let's stop now and stop popularizing this sort of five ways why you will never do X or, or why um, seven insights from behavioral sciences that will give you a better love life. And I mean, all that kind of stuff. It, it, the Cosmo, uh, yeah, yes. you know, headline it's that, that because so much crap out there. Yeah. So, yes. what do you think about Richard Thaler winning the the Nobel Prize in economics? Then is that a good thing for the behavioral sciences? Is it more getting into what you're talking about, where we tend to just take a couple nudging is now the new new black. Um, well, I think I think we should not overestimate uh, the impact of a Nobel Prize on society as a whole. I think the Nobel Prizes is, have just been an, or are being announced uh, one after the other this week. <clears throat> people say, "Oh, yeah, another woman, oh, fantastic," which is which is all great. But ask people in the street in two weeks' time who won the Nobel Peace Prize today, people will not remember and will not care one jot most of the time. So, I don't think in the wider scheme of things, Thaler's Nobel Prize has 
made all that much difference. Within the field of economics, I think it has. Um, it has, in a sense, cemented what started with uh, Kahneman, of course, yeah. uh, in 2002. Um, well, he was not even an economist winning the, uh, the Nobel Prize. So I, I, there's hope for me. <laughs> there you go. Ah, yes, there is. Um, but uh, in, in all seriousness, I think it, it, it's kind of um, underscored that behavior economics is a thing. Yeah. within economics. That said, I think uh, Thaler writes it in uh, Misbehaving as well. Um, he sees behavioral economics being subsumed. It will cease to exist as soon as there is enough, as, as, as soon as economics has become as behavioral as it needs to be. Yeah. And I'm entirely um, uh, aligned with that. I think, that, again, the dichotomy is not helpful in its own right. Um, I don't think we should maintain a sort of there is neoclassical economics and behavioral economics and never the twain shall meet. I think the two shall come together and become one, um, one sensible combination of the two um, and will continue to evolve in the same way as within economics, of course, there are different schools of thoughts uh, thought that, that conflict with each other and out of conflict comes wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's again going back to you, you talking about at the very beginning and in, in in looking at these things that aren't working and then figuring out how, why they're not working the way that we had predicted them to do. And that's what, you know, if economics is really about that study of human, humans interacting in the financial component, then yeah, the more information and, and it should match up. It should overlap at some point. And I liked what Thaler said in Misbehaving to your point of, you know, at some point it's just gonna be, uh, interwoven together and it, it won't be behavioral economics it won't be economics it'll just be you know economics, economics yeah. you know. Uh, one of my favorite blog spots uh, that, that you wrote was about the accidental behavioral economist on vacation on holiday yeah. <laughs> uh, and what and one of the reasons that I love it Kuhn is because of the, the the number of things that you noticed and I was wondering if you could just share some of these observations with our listeners because as you went through um, you know, uh, closing the patisserie, the, the, close, uh, the cost of parking, the, the reputation, how reputation and risk go together. I thought it was just fascinating. Could you just share what it's like? I, I want to get inside the head of, of Kuhn's yeah. thoughts and just say, well, what is it like to be on holiday with you? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I can assure you that I don't, um, I don't talk about this all the time. It's more of an observational thing. But I really have to credit people like uh, Tim Harford here. Um, and uh, Stephen Landsberg and uh, uh, Friedman on writing the sort of everyday economics type books. They they have opened my eyes in the 1990s of uh, for the the fact that we we are economic beings. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just as a, as a very small aside, a couple of days ago, I saw somebody tweet something about um, a survey they'd done with first year uh, economic students in London and asked them for a kind of terms that people associate with economics and this is people studying microeconomics and the most important term the most the, the most voted term was money and I, I think you just alluded to it as well and i think i mean my my heart sank because i think economics is about so much more than money it's it really is about human interaction yeah. it's about the kind of the stuff we trade and including reputation including leisure time including um, attention, including friendship. I mean, all these things are all part of 
how we we weigh up the things uh, that we do. And so, when I'm on holiday, um, especially I'm, I'm often going back to Belgium, you then you, you see the kind of behavior that you think hmm, that's that's interesting. Why would people do this? I mean, one of the things I described, I think, um, was a car being parked um, on the street, and central parking is is very expensive. And then you see, well, I mean, it's going to cost the guy 20 or 25 euros a day to park the car. And every morning we went to the shop to get our um, our pastries and the car was in exactly the same position. So that car was parked there, probably within walking distance of the front door of where these people were staying. It was a German car, so it was not it was definitely holidaymakers. Um, and they were paying 25 euros a day for the car to be parked there without using it. So <laughs> why would people do this? And so what kind of trade-off do they make? They could park the car, I don't know, half a mile up the road where it's free parking. And then whenever they needed it, they could walk over there or one of them could go and fetch the car. But they, they don't. And so they're just paying this money. Now, it may well be that they think, well, we're paying, I don't know, several hundred euros uh, for this week of holiday. So, I mean, this money to pay the, uh, the parking for the car is not that, uh, that much. But even so, if you add it up, I know a week at um, 20 euros a, a day, it's 140 euros, it's like 170, 180 dollars. Yeah. It's not peanuts. It's not you, could, you could have a nice meal with that or lots of ice cream on the, on the seaside or whatever. And so, so have these people really thought about this or is it just some kind of knee-jerk reaction? We must, I believe if you like, we must have the car close to our front door and yeah, we'll just pay whatever we need to pay for it. Um, and I mean, the other thing about the, the reputation is about when when you order bread at the at the shop. Yeah, I love, love, love this story. Yeah, this is you, great. You need to pay in advance, and of course, if you, I mean, in where I live, um, in in this provincial town in, in UK, um, there is uh, there used to be a baker in in town, but he's moved out. But he still supplies the bread to some local shops to a local butcher here. So twice a week. I collect my bread is the best the best bread in the world. Uh, I won't name them. I won't make any uh, sort of publicity here. But, so I don't need to pay in advance. I just say, well, I want a loaf on Saturdays and I want a loaf on Wednesdays, and I just pay the shop. And so it's it, it's all a matter of trust. Now in this seaside town, if you want to order some some bread rolls, some rolls, or some some bread or something special, you need to pay up front. Why? Because you don't have a reputation there, and you you can't get away with it so they they don't trust you whereas here there is trust and again this is an interesting observation i think for an accidental economist to see how shopkeepers and tourists adopt different ways of interacting in a different environment yeah yeah i mean there's other things as well there was this business about the bins being removed uh, and the cost of that uh, because of course um uh, in in again another thing um, in Belgium, you need to uh, pay for, uh, for trash by buying bags. Expensive, so they're ordinary plastic bags, but you need to buy the right bag with the right inscription. It costs money. But when you're on holiday, of course, it doesn't work like that because you're there for a week. Trash is collected on a Tuesday, but you're there until Saturday. So what do you do with the trash? So what people used to do is just sort of pack it up and uh, under cover of darkness, go to the nearest bin and stuff their... Uh, they're trash in, in a public bin and so the, the municipality thought well we can't have this you know what we're just going to remove all the bins 
(laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, yes, uh, people are now obliged to take their trash home. But of course, there is lots of littering because there are no bins. And so they have to employ larger teams to come in and tidy the streets every morning. So is this is this wise thinking? I don't know. But it is intriguing to see the kind of guerrilla that takes place between the town and the tourists around trash. Yeah, the unintended consequences of that. It's it's interesting because you talk about the difference of like being uh, in your home and how you show up at holiday and it gets into, you just wrote a a, a blog about self-identity and we've done some work with self schemas and you show up differently, uh, at a, at your family than you do at work and you have a different mindset of how that, that plays out. But does, you know, you, you do have a different self-identity of yourself when you're on vacation. And so to your point, that the, the people from Germany with that parked car might have been in a whole, you know, at home, they might have never, ever done that. But because they were on holiday, that could definitely be, well, it's okay now because this is our identity and we're free spirit, you know, free yep. spirits. And so it, and that gets into economic utility and it gets into a whole number of other factors. And so it's fascinating stuff. So can we, uh, can we talk about music? <laughs> Can we talk about jazz? Can we talk about the altered chord? I want. I want to. Yes. I want to hear about about your 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 life, uh, or when you. What did you say? When you grow up, you want to be a, a jazz musician. Uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, so, was music your first love? Um, it probably was. Yes. Yes, the first girl I was, uh, I was, I had a crush on, I must have been about six, but I think I was in love with music before then. <laughs> that, that's terrific. And, and uh, tell us about your affection for jazz specifically. Well, I wasn't um, initially all that much into jazz. I mean, I grew up in, in the 60s. I was born in the late 50s, so I, I, was, I was there, uh, but I was, I was very little. And... I, I still think that there was an incredible richness in popular music in the 1960s. Some, some really great stuff uh, being made, obviously, with the people, but the whole thing that, that's part of that. Um, later on, I, I started exploring and discovering, I mean, particularly through jazz rock, then getting into jazz. And then maybe the last 20 years or so, getting much more into traditional jazz, but also modern jazz. But what I... I like about it, and of course, this may all be uh, motivated reasoning on my part, uh, sort of just retrofitting uh, things uh, because it fits my story. Um, But I think in jazz, mostly you have a groove, and that's kind of, it's the thing that gives you stability, it gives you something to hold on to, and then you've got stuff happening on top, and you've got your progressions, and there may be a bit unusual, which way is it going here, and then you've got your improv. And then you got your altered chords in there, you got your dissonance and your consonants. And I think it, it it is very much a metaphor of life, I think, if you look at it that way. Um, I'm I'm really conscious that I'm retrofitting it to my, my perspective of life, but it still, I think, is uh, is relevant to me. Um, and I I once wrote a client report. Um, this was a, a unit in, in Philips, uh, which no longer exists right now, so I can talk really about it. But it was a bit of a maverick unit. Um, they were at the time developing the 
um, DVD recording uh, technology. Okay, right. right. Yeah, Philips was was one of the pioneers in DVD yes. development. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they 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 were a bit different. I mean, they didn't quite fit in the sort of corporate giant, and their boss uh, was a bit of a maverick, and the team around him was a bit. But of course, they needed to conform to uh, certain corporate processes in order to survive and thrive. And I, I, I don't normally do this, but I gave the report a title, a title and I called it Conducting a Jazz Symphony. Oh. So in, to, to, to reflect, I mean, a, a symphony orchestra is quite big and of course needs a certain degree of discipline more than a, a three-piece jazz trio. Mm -hmm. But it's still in that context needed the freedom to experiment and to, uh, to try things out and to improvise. And to me, it, that title, I mean, it just came to me in a flash. It's not something I've been popping on for a long time, but it, it seemed to capture the, the tension that these guys needed to manage really well. Um, and, and so that, that jazziness, um, I, I like to bring in, in my work as well um, in order to, to help clients break out of the, often the sort of the... Um, straight jackets of, of corporate procedures and corporate uh, assumptions and, and uh, structures. So for us non-musical people, help me understand <laughs> what an altered chord actually is. What is an that's altered that's, chord? That's, I, I don't know. Either of you, you guys I'm, are both musicians well, I'm, here. Kuhn is our guest. I mean, <laughs> well, I, I mean, as the name says, you alter certain notes in a chord. Um, you, you have an ordinary chord. I mean, it's the kind of thing that if you sit in front of a piano keyboard, you play C, E, G, C, and that sounds sounds nice. Yeah. But it sounds a bit boring. And then, yeah, so it's, it's four, uh, four notes. Well, it, it's, it's, it's like the consonant, right? It's, it's yes. dominant, so it's easy. Yeah. And then, then you start, if you start moving some notes around, then you, you, you start creating dissonance, but it's mellifluous dissonance. It sounds good. Now, that is, of course, a matter of taste. I think what we today think sounds good, people a hundred years ago would not have agreed with. Okay. Uh, there, is, there is an evolution in our musical um, uh, ability, even in general terms, the kind of stuff that we are familiar with. So, so we are more tolerant, I think, of dissonance than, than people were a hundred or two hundred years ago. And you hear it in classical as well. But to me, the, the altered chord is, a way of expressing the value of diversity um, okay. and the richness diversity can create. So if you don't stick to your um, one, three, five um, construction of a chord, you create something that sounds more interesting uh, and uh, much richer. And I think we can do the same thing in organizations. So I, I make altered chords all the time when I <laughs> And that's why your life is so rich. <laughs> that's that's just because I don't know. But it, so on that, and, and this is going down a rabbit hole here, uh, there was, uh, do, do you need to be, have a level of expertise? And we've talked about this before, where, you know, the beginner is going to be playing just straight chords. And are they able to do an altered chord that to your, your point, Kuhn, sounds good or is it just going to be a mistake then and you know at what level do you need to get be, be 
until that time comes when the altered chord is actually intentional and not a mistake. And you can take the same thing for your life metaphor, right? And so are you, how much do you have to stay in that groove, which is what I understand, and how much then do you? Yeah. I'm not sure the distinction between intentionality and mistakenness is relevant because who knows if i'm playing do you know whether i'm playing a mistake or whether it's intentional <laughs> that's a very good point yeah and and i mean this is something something that um i i think it, i may have picked this up at a very early presentation skills course when i first became a management consultant when of course i mean you've prepared your slides and your speech and everything and you think oh what if i forget and the, the tutor said, well, who knows that you've forgotten something? You're the only person who knows. And suddenly, I mean, this is like a sort of an incredible truth that dawned on me. Yes, of course. They don't know what I'm going to say. So if I don't say anything, they don't know whether I've forgotten something or simply. <laughs> and I think it's the same with, with, with mistakes, certainly in, in jazz music. I mean, there are no mistakes in jazz music. It's just, it's just another note that, that leads to another note. So I think, and, and as I suppose this, this, we can loop this back again, as, as you can do with anything, of course, to this, this first discussion on, on the replication crisis, um, where something goes wrong, but it then it points the way at something else. And we should, we should embrace these mistakes. And these things are, are not right or not as we expected and see what we can do, what we can get out of it and where, where does it lead? And Let's so go there. So that's that's kind of my understanding of jazz then, which I am not, you know, seeped in at all, is that that's what that is, right? Then you, you play off of that as opposed to everybody shutting down or looking and going, mm -hmm. what what did you just do? And yeah, you, the band doesn't stop. Right. You, you keep going. You continue to improvise and, through it. And again, it's a, it's a wonderful... Like, metaphor however you want to call it but to that point of what you just said replicability crisis or life in general where do we go from there how do we then take that and build it into something that can actually be better or different or more robust and all of those factors as we're going forward with that so all right well we're coming to a point where if if you had to give two or three pieces of advice or tips to the listeners on ways that they can, uh, insights that you have from life or behavioral science or whatever it would be. What, what would be two or three things that you would say, here's some sage wisdom that uh, you can take and, and use? That's, that's a hard one. And uh, yeah. <laughs> like this, but... <clears throat> I think maybe number one would be pretty much everything is behavior. Okay. So if you, if something is not the way you want it to be, or you expect it to be, the first place to go and look for is, well, what are the behaviors and why are these behaviors? So um, try to understand the situation from the behaviors of the people that are involved. There's more than one way to skin a cat. Mm. Uh, do not think that anything that you've learned is the be-all and end-all. Um, truth is an emerging concept. It doesn't exist in its own right. It, it develops out of stuff that happens. So you don't go look for it. It just happens in front of your eyes, yeah. I think. So, so don't, don't assume that you've 
you find the truth somewhere and now all you need to do is to go and apply it. We have a bias, we can apply yes. it everywhere. Yes. But, but. <laughs> maybe, maybe the third one is probably the most important one. Don't ever take yourself too seriously. <laughs> well, Tim and I do not have that problem. <laughs> we can't. <laughs> we, we, we have too much in our way to ever take ourselves too seriously. Uh, uh, I think yeah. that is some wonderful sage advice. So, uh, Kut, thank you. We appreciate this. This has been fun. It has been insightful, and uh, uh, we're, we're excited. So We are. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on the Behavioral Groups podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Tim and Kurt. I think it's been tremendous. I had no idea what to expect, but it's been absolute, absolute fun. <laughs> Thank you very much. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our now recently oxygen-deprived brains. <laughs> yeah, after coming down from 32,000 feet? Yeah, we were just at a conference out in New York City uh, talking all things behavioral science. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was fun. A, it was a good, good conference. So, but with that, let's talk about the interview with Kuhn. Tim, what were some of the things that you found really fascinating? Well, first, I just loved the conversation with him. It was just so fun, so easy, so, you know, just a really great conversation overall. So I just I just want to say that. But um, the, the one of the things that really struck me is that um, you can't really learn about behavioral sciences just by learning the biases and heuristics. It's the, you can't learn a language by reading the a dictionary, dictionary. And in that language, there are nuances, there are yeah. facets of how you use those terms and when they apply and when they don't apply. And There's context. There's context in the context yeah. of how you, you put all of that together. Yeah, and practice, right? I mean, there's actually just getting out in the field and doing it. And I feel like that's that's one of the most important things is observing and then testing and all. And this was implied, right? Okay. Uh, but but what, what I felt like... Um, um, Kuhn was was implying there was we've got to get out and do it. We have to and we have to test and we have to measure and 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 that's when we learn about to get to take it back to language. We learn about language by trying it, by having a conversation, by seeing what it's like. We learn about behavioral sciences by doing it, by making some applications and seeing how things work. So, do you think that? is not the current way that many people are using behavioral science, that they are literally looking at it as a dictionary and saying, here's a behavioral bias, here is a heuristic, and plopping those on? Yeah. I saw a, a WebEx presentation just a couple of weeks ago by a company that will go unnamed that they said, okay, so we know that people have loss aversion, so when you come up with loss, when you encounter loss aversion with one, with one person then you use the endowment effect to counteract that it's like <laughs> no this isn't it's not a chess game or, or not even a checkers game it's just not that predictable people are living in environments and uh, you know as, as Kuhn said what, what did he say about about growing up in Switzerland absolutely informs you differently than growing up in Brussels in Brussels yeah, yeah. so that the mindset that people come into a situation, the culture that your organization has, that lends itself right into the conversation that he was talking about in regards to organizations. And right. too often how a best practice gets put in place 
in companies A and B, and wow, it works really good. So now company C is going to come in and, and do the exact same best practice, but it doesn't work. Michael Hallsworth. Right? Oh, there we go. Yeah. You know, his, his work with the, with the British uh, Insights team demonstrates that perfectly, right? Right. It just doesn't work everywhere. Or you you have a great example of the uh, replicating uh, the, the test uh, in both the West Coast and in Atlanta. Right? Yes, and we talked about that. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it was one of those components where you, depending upon what is primed, and then the cultural components, it can have a very different outcome. Yeah. Same thing with best practices. The the piece that I think, and this is something we heard in the in a lot of the conversations at both of the recent conferences we've we've been at, is the need to test. That we too often make these broad generalizations about some of these very same biases or heuristics uh, and the application that they have in a general sense, and that we really need to do a better job, both as practitioners, um, actually as practitioners, mm -hmm. not both yes. as practitioners, yeah. as practitioners, when we are going into organizations or if organizations are trying to apply some of these, these components in, to saying, let's take a a more cautious or maybe a, a, a you know a, a slower approach to this and do some testing do some experimentation Very much so and i know when we talked with charlotte webb no, i'm charlotte webb charlotte blank <laughs> confusing two of our adding two of our wonderful guests together, together. Yes, wow. um, but when we talked to, to charlotte and you know you just Changing the the word experiment to pilot was one of the, yeah, the suggestions yeah. that she had, and I think we don't do that enough. I think we really need to do that more in business and in the application of this. The other thing that uh, Kuhn had had once written uh, in in a paper, he said that it, uh, it is it's unwise to take an observe effect as gospel, oh. and and it is equally unwise to take. A single failed replication as proof that what was originally observed doesn't exist. So, right. So, just because we uh, the, there is a, a pro, there's there's different impact between the t the study in the West Coast and the study in Atlanta Georgia, in yeah. Georgia doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Right. That that is not that, a that effect is real. That is not a and so the replication crisis, so called replication crisis, was. Another big thing, and I love that component that you just said, and the way that, that we talked about this is saying, you know, you have to replicate that experiment in such a way that it is almost exactly perfect in order to really Which make really sure that it's a replication. Do. Right. But, and so so at the conference, I was actually had the chance to, to walk with Bob Cialdini and talk with him. Uh, and so as part of that conversation, we brought this, we started talking about this. And he... It's, it's topical for him. It was it? topical for him. Yeah. And we were talking about the fact that if, if you can't... Uh, we, we talked about the priming uh, thing with John Barr. And you know how, again, it was his has the aging uh, study where yeah. they primed them with with age words and then measured how fast they walked down the hallway. And what he brought up, which I thought was really interesting, what he said Cialdini brought what up. Cialdini brought up was he said, look, what what did they see out in the hallway? Did they get a subsequent prime? 
either maybe before leaving the yeah. the the room, maybe there was a different picture up that caught people's attention that wasn't in the first study. Maybe there was a brighter, attractive brighter lights, or... attractive person in the hallway yeah. that mm-hmm. again changed their their uh, prime. So it's you know not knowing these things, and again. There's some truth in that. There's also this component where we tend to take these findings um, from these studies, these effects, and broadly generalize them across this wide spath of every known human in the world has this. And I would love to be able to do that. But I don't think we should because the research doesn't necessarily point that out. And what I love about the replication crisis, so-called crisis, yeah. or any time that a, an experiment doesn't replicate exactly, is it lends itself to providing further insight into when and where that effect is working. Well said. And how it, it works. Yeah. And so this isn't a crisis. This is how science works. What did, what did Edison say? You know, after after he finally found that piece of cotton filament that would keep the light bulb burning, he said, well, I've just discovered 10,000 ways to not keep a, a light bulb burning. Yeah. And, and that's an important, those are important discoveries. They are important discoveries. You know, it's one of those pieces, 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 my gosh, that lack of oxygen is really It's, it's hitting us play. both right now. <laughs> so <laughs> it doesn't help that we just downed a fifth of Jameson and it's midnight, but <laughs> actually I just made that up. <laughs> that wasn't true. <laughs> we ought to do uh, one of these after a fifth of Jameson oh at midnight. God. Would that not be fun? Would that not be either a total bomb or it would be the most wonderful grooving session we ever? A, we need a good sound engineer for that one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, replication is really, I don't, I agree with Kuhn. I don't think it's a crisis. Yeah. I agree with Bob Cialdini. I don't think it's a crisis. It's not. I think it no. is the scientific method working and we are finding more information out about that. Okay. Uh, what was your number one thing that, uh, I'm sorry, you just said a whole bunch of really cool things, but you had asked me and then you just like dogpiled onto my thing. And now I'm just asking you, what was your number one thing? Or did we already talk about it? Well, you no, know, I, I think we talked about my number one thing. Okay, sorry Yeah, the replication that. thing was my number one thing. All right. But my number two thing that I loved was the concept or metaphor of a jazz symphony. Now, again, I am not a jazz, I'm not the musician, so I had to really think about this. And you guys explained so it really well. So this is where, like, opposites attract? Is yeah. that it? Well... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> what I was thinking about was this fact, and, and you explained it really well, um, at least to me as we were talking about this, is that you know experimentation and yet at the same time being directed. Yeah. And, and those two kind of are counterfactual or counterintuitive things. They can appear like they're, they're opposite ends, but they don't have to be. And that's the cool thing about jazz is that in jazz, they work closely together. You have, in fact, you have to have both. You have to agree that we're going to start with a form and we're going to go in this particular direction to start with, but then anything can happen. But isn't the symphony part of it being a directed with a director who is yes. leading it? Yes. And so the, the concept is you have this person leading things, but within that symphony, there's experimentation that goes on 
which lends itself into the whole concept of an altered chord. Altered chord. Back to the altered. <laughs> you dig that. You dig the altered chord. I just think it's it's. And again, I, we talked about this in in the interview. You know, is it is an altered chord an altered chord if it's just a mistake, or if is is it an mm. altered chord only if it's intentionally uh, altered? That's and I and Kuhn's, Kuhn's you know top on that or you know, his thought was doesn't matter. Because right. the only right. person, at least in that jazz component where they do altered, where he was thinking about altered chords, is yeah. who knows if it was an accident. The only person that knows is you, the person who's actually doing it. Uh, but the listeners don't know. And so the end result is there. I don't know if I would take that uh, analogy further out into other realms where you're trying to do an altered chord and say your design of a of an incentive program or something and adding in a slight twist or change. And if you did it by accident, I don't know. Now I'm thinking about that and I just, I, I might be, you know, if it was an accident and it worked out well, maybe that's okay. Okay. But we're, we're, we're down from 32,000 feet. So <laughs> and, and, I don't okay. know. It sounds I, like you're still up there. I, I might be, I might be, um, Okay, so I also wanted to talk about context matters, okay, and how um, because uh, this 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 is a a, a tie-in here. So Kuhn talked about the uranium builders, the people oh. who are you know um, uh, enriching uranium that's going to be used thirty years in the future, and that came to me while we were in New York uh, at the summit, and Eric Johnson, the tremendous uh, professor and researcher, uh, talked about how the average age of buildings mm. in the su- in the southern half of New York City is 95 years old. The average age is 95 years old. So buildings in New York City are old. And there's no way that the, for me, there's just no way to imagine that someone who's building a building today could say the infrastructure around it, the way people are use it, the number of people who will use it, um, you know, the... You know, heating, uh, lighting, you know, uh, HVAC, the, um, you know, the cars on the street. Garbage collection. Garbage collection. Which in New York we talked about, right? And the fact that they throw the garbage out on the sidewalk. And I go, just the, there was no design for that back when. uh, 150 years ago. It just wasn't available. So, context, I mean, so while it's great to think about the future, it's still really, really hard for us humans to get our heads around anything other than the present. Yeah. Well, we talked with um, Barry Richholz, right? And, yeah. and one of the things that he was talking about from that perspective is he, he's a financier and talking about uh, a number of different things, but he's talking about we really just live in the now. And, and the future, we can, we can try to envision, but we usually only envision a couple futures for ourselves, and they're usually pretty positive futures Whoa, yeah. for ourselves. yeah. But there's really an infinity of futures out there of which ones come true. We don't have any real clue as to which ones. To, to which ones. There's be- always there, we, there might we, be we can't greater, anticipate all the all the eventualities. There might be a greater percentage on some than on others, but in reality, it's all guess. And so living in the now and here. That being said, to your point of context matters context of now influencing the context of what we then are working with 20 years down the road 30 years 50 absolutely years absolutely makes a difference so how do because we are living in in New York City 
millions and millions of people are living with streets and infrastructure that was built, you know, 100 years ago. So, so how do we then take that? And, and, and so to Eric, you know, Johnson's point, try to anticipate for that future. How do we how, how do we do that? Because that that while it may be hard, might even be impossible. Is the effort worth it? Is there a way of doing that? that is something that we should strive for let's get eric johnson on a podcast and ask him that very question all right we should do that you just didn't want to answer so all right <laughs> what's wrong with that all I right mean, this is all right that's no, a no that's question. a great thing we'll get it anybody knows anybody knows eric and wants to get a an invite out we'll uh yes we great. would love to to talk to him about that so I mentioned before I don't know much about jazz, but you know something about jazz. I know I know uh, the the Dave Brubeck group or five or whatever. Take five. Take five. And, yeah, right. And a, maybe a Dizzy Gillespie song, but I'm not a I'm not a jazz guy. Mm. So help That's me okay. understand what. So tell me about jazz. Well, I, I, there's one thing that everybody should know is that jazz is a uniquely American created form of oh, music. Okay. So I mean we have. Like music gets has been created in all cultures, you know, throughout all, all of history, mm-hmm. and uh, and the United States as a, a conglomerate, as a you know melting pot of all these different cultures, didn't really have anything that was unique until the early 20th century when jazz was created. Huh. So that's really <laughs> the United States kind of only contribution to <laughs> to music. So so uh, jazz is jazz. So jazz is the basketball of sports of music maybe. Well, uh, oh yeah, okay, the, right. So, so jazz is the because basketball of music. There we go. Sorry, yeah. Because so basketball didn't exist anywhere else. Didn't exist anywhere else where like even American football is a is kind of a Kind of little thing off of uh, rugby. Baseball yeah. has some other, you know, starts cricket. in some cricket and various different things. Yeah. You know, uh, hockey is definitely not American. I thought basketball and, came from like the Romans when they cut off the heads of their rivals <laughs> and then they threw them into baskets. Wasn't there something like that? No. Isn't that what basketball came from? It was John Naismith from? putting peach baskets up in the YMCA. Bro- Come on. Oh, okay. So yeah. it was peach baskets. It was a it was a basket. It just wasn't the heads of your rivals. <laughs> oh my god! And we digress. Okay. Um, so so jazz was uniquely American. What else yeah. do we need to know? Well, uh, I think for me, I think the jazz as a as an art form influencing the whole world. So we talk about the alt. Kuhn talks about the altar chord. We'll actually get back to Kuhn here. He talks about the altar chord. If we take music history and we look at the literature from the earliest days of of music that was recorded in, and I'm just going to talk about Western music. This is Western civilization, so music that came basically from Western Europe. Fine, um, I'm, be I'm, that way. I'm limiting it. I'm sorry, but but if we just look at that kind of music, the first music was organum. It was just one note at a time. It was just very, very simple. And that was about as complicated as we can get. And, and that That's was about as complicated as I can get. So. Yeah. So that was like in the, maybe in the, you know, that lived for thousands of, possibly thousands of years up until about the year 1000 in, in common era. And then we start experimenting with more than one note at a time. It becomes polyphonic. So now we have two notes at the same time. And that's when we start creating chords. And that's a major, major development. And then we get to the, the 1500s. And now we've got Bach and Handel. And we've got 
people creating magnificent chords, but mostly out of three notes at a time. Okay. And that pretty much stays the same up until the end of the 19th century when, when the uh, serious composer starts saying, there's 12 tones in a scale. Let's actually use all 12 tones in the composition of the piece. And Whoa. so, yeah, so dodecaphonic music was created so that the composers could just expand the way that they're using tonal music. And then jazz sits on top of that saying, we've got a palette that is everything. We have, we're going to change up all the, all the melody. We're going to change up all of the tempos. And so jazz was like this, in some ways, this beautiful culmination and application of magnificent uh, efforts to develop music through all of human history. And we just got a grooving lesson <laughs> of musical history. That was actually, I, I am actually really, that was, I did not know that it took until, what, the year thousand in order to get chords and then yeah. really took a long time basically three chords up until whatever that's crazy that's crazy so just crazy i didn't realize that was going to come out like that <laughs> but but we didn't rehearse the question either we so. never rehearse the question actually we never rehearse we could just leave it there <laughs> and maybe we should um but that's a whole separate conversation so All thank right. you for joining us yes thank you for listening hopefully you enjoyed our interview with Kuhn Smets and our you know way back memory into music history if you did please please uh go out and and rate us high on itunes um itunes we're finding out more and more is kind of the bellwether one so even if you don't have an iphone you can go out and you can just go to uh on most computers to your itunes thing and rate us highly there please do that um and and if you like if you would like, please go ahead and leave a review. We would love to have... Didn't uh, we just ask for that? You mean... It, actually writing a review, oh. not just a five-star rating, which, oh, of course, they would give us. write a review. Okay. Write yeah. a review. And it could be something like, these guys are awesome! Exclamation point, exclamation <laughs> point, exclamation point. That would be fine. You can take that and use it and put your own name to it. I'm fine with that. I think that so. So now you're prodding, you're priming our our listeners. Is that is that what you're doing? I'm giving them uh, easy ways. These are the tools to. These are the these are some tools. You're making it frictionless. Behavioral grooves (laughs) is the best podcast on behavioral science in the entire world. Quote unquote. Done. You can write that. Get it out there. It's, <laughs> All it's, right, that might be a lie, it's, it's but your, it it's would, yours for it, the taking. It, you can take yeah, it and okay. use it if you believe that, and we'll go for it. So I'm just hoping someone believes that. <laughs> I just hope somebody <laughs> takes us up on the stupid gun. Oh, these guys are idiots, but I'm going to do this anyway. There you go. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. <laughs>